Um, but yeah, so had a great, uh, great time at Founders Baptist. Um, felt very homey down there. Texas is a great place to be. Uh, very conservative, even though it's in Houston, so you're around believers down there. Um, it is uh, uh, a Baptist church, so we're all similar in doctrine and TS, but there's also similarity in in the way that uh, that they do things. And uh, if you've listened or know uh, Pastor Richard Caldwell, uh, Pastor Richard Caldwell at all, he's just a wise, great brother. So um, they got the leftovers uh, from what uh, from what you all got we, with the church history series. So um, I always serve the best to uh, to the sheep here, and then give them the less leftovers. But there's plenty uh, left over after uh, those uh, the church history uh, sermons. So I just reworked the introductions and five solas, and and it it seemed to be received well. A lot of uh, Hispanic influence, obviously, in in Texas, and that means there's a lot of Catholicism uh, down there. So, uh, just a lot of people um, that came out of the Catholic Church. A lot of conversations uh, afterwards. Um, they're having a similar experience uh, there that we are here uh, with COVID, as far as growth is concerned. Every single one of the TES churches. Um, it's almost identical, you know, 100-plus people, uh, people coming to Christ. There were two baptisms on Sunday morning. Testimony sounded very similar to the three baptisms we had uh, the other night. And a young lady, young, she's probably 30, just came out of a really rough, uh, you know, outwardly sinful lifestyle, uh, her husband as well, and... Um, she got married, and somebody gave her a uh, uh, just you know a John MacArthur CD about how to be a good wife on First Peter three, and uh, I think it was her mother. I forget. She said, um, "This guy will tell you verse by verse what the Bible says about you know being being a good wife." And she said, "I thought how boring. You know, why would I want to listen to somebody just go verse by verse through the Bible?" She said, then I listened to it, and it was John MacArthur teaching about submission, and I thought, you know, I don't like this guy. I don't like what he's saying. This is crazy. But she said, I don't know why. I just kept listening to it. And, um, and then uh, that same person gave her a Vodi Bauckham uh, message about the gospel, and then she said that same person gave her a Paul Washer message about the gospel, and that just ripped my face off. And then she said, I came to Christ, and... Uh, then uh, her husband, the Lord was working on him as well, and, and uh, then they'd been at Founders for, for about a year, so they looked for a church that preached verse by verse through the Bible, and, you know, she's just, she's filling the baptistry with her tears while she's, you know, she's doing this, and just beautiful um, how somebody takes two people out of just a very uh, polluted and, and uh, sinful life, and... Um, and just totally transforms them and changes them, and now they're they're starting over in Jesus, um, and uh, and it's a beautiful thing. So open your Bibles to Psalm twenty six, as we are devotion, if you will, this morning before we pray. I, I think it is, but 
I think it is. I, I don't. I think you probably want that for somebody else, though. Cindy doesn't need that. You need the good husband one. So. But maybe you want to pass that on to another woman. I'm not sure. <laughs> psalm 26, the psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. I don't know if you ever run across those type of statements in the Psalms and you think, wow, what was David saying? I mean, how can the Bible say there's none righteous, no, not one, all have sinned? And then he's appealing to the Lord saying, I've walked in integrity and I've trusted in you without wavering. Um, Those other passages obviously... uh, inform us about this one. David is saying what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, I, I know of nothing you know, against myself. My conscience is clear. My sins are covered. Um, and from that, to that extent, I know there's nothing between you and I, Lord, and, and so I'm appealing you know, on, that, on, on that basis. He's surely not saying he's sinless or doesn't need Christ. Because look at what he says in verse 2. Examine me, O Lord, and try me, test my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. And there's the word about God's covenant love, His love that comes to us before we ever loved Him. So in light of all of that, I know of nothing in my heart, I know of nothing between you and I, Lord. There's no unconfessed sin, there's nothing I'm participating in that that would separate us. But examine me, I mean, if there is, I, I want to know, try me, uh, ring me out, uh, you know, test my, my, my mind and my heart, uh, look everywhere, Lord, um, because you're the one that is set before, before my eyes. You're, you're the one that I'm, I'm looking to, your, your covenant, and I've walked in your truth. Um, I don't just mouth it, I I, I live it out. I don't sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. Um, I want to be around your people. Um, I I find I can't go out of the world. I can't completely get away from from sinners. I wouldn't want to do that if if I could, because I want to see them come to Christ, but... Know you, but but I but I don't have deep fellowship with with people who hate you, people who don't know you. Um, I, I will not sit with the with the wicked. It's a close fellowship. Um, I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all of your your wonders. Plenty of places in the Bible where God talks about He doesn't delight in in the the sacrifice itself of, of bulls and, and goats. Or at one point He says, "I mean, I own it all. I mean, I created the cows. So don't think that you're doing something big by you know giving me your cow." Uh, but what is pleasing to the Lord? And it's, it's encapsulated in this verse, sacrifice of thanksgiving. Um, when you come before me, come with a, 
an acknowledging heart, a thankful heart, a heart that that uh, gets who I am and um, expresses that love. Uh, I told you before, unbelievers, how they're marked in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is, uh, you know, we always think of homosexuality, which is the ultimate expression that's, that's given there. But it starts with unbelievers were unthankful. So believers are the opposite of that. You want to be the opposite of unthankful, unacknowledging of God. Unbelievers walk through life on a regular basis. They just get up, they turn the TV on, they go to work, they drink their coffee, and they don't even think about God. They don't even pray. They don't do anything. The first thing that you do when you get up, when you get your senses, is you're, you're thinking about the Lord, thinking about God. You're thinking about this is the day that he created. And you're living in light of that reality and that creates thankfulness in your heart. You give thanks. And that's what is a sacrifice. You think of it that way. When you are thankful, it's like taking an offering to the altar and laying it on there before the Lord. And that thanksgiving rises before his throne and it's pleasing to him. You can also think the opposite. When you're grumbling and grumpy and I don't like what's going on, the opposite is rising from your heart before him. So you want to... You want to tamp that down and repent. Eight, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So David is talking about the, the temple there. I love the habitation of your house. I, uh, the place where your glory dwells. Um, what a privilege it was. I mean, don't get the idea that uh, you know, we, we hear about the scribes and the Pharisees in the New Testament, legalism and all of that. Don't, don't get the idea that the, the average Jew went to the temple kicking and screaming. Oh, i got to go to the temple and take my sacrifice and do all of these Mosaic laws. That, that's not what they felt or thought. Um, the ones who were true believers, saved, looking for the Messiah, that was their, an expression of their worship and obedience out of faith, they're going to the temple. Out of faith, I get to give my first, you know, uh, born lamb. I get to take it there. I get to participate in all of these things. And, um, and it's a joy to do that. David uh, loved the temple. And he says, why? It's the place where your glory dwells. The only place on the planet at that point in time where God promised to meet with his people. And he promised to meet them in particular on the mercy seat, which that's amazing in and of itself. There's this mercy seat that's on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark below it, what's inside the Ark is the, you know, the rod and the, the manna, the, 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 the Ten Commandments, so the rod and the Ten Commandments later, and the broken commandments of man, the glory of God hovering, hovering above the broken commandments of man, the Ten Commandments showing how we have fallen short of the glory of God. And he says, I'll meet you here on the mercy seat. I'll meet you between my glory and between your sin, between your, your broken commandments. And on that mercy seat is where the blood is sprinkled. Isn't that gorgeous? God's glory looks through the blood 
and doesn't see the broken commandments anymore, foreshadowing Jesus Christ, that when he looks at you and I, even though we are sinful and we have broken his law, he doesn't see that. He sees Christ and his blood he washed us clean. That's what's going on in the temple. And a true Jew who understood that goes there with that kind of, of awe and, and perspective. And this passage for us today, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. You are the temple. And so now you carry that glory around you in, 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 inside is why we want to live holy lives. We don't want to defile ourselves um, in sin or, or anything else. And, and then I think there's, a, there's another expression of where the glory of God dwells in 1 Corinthians 3. Spirit dwells in you, not in a temple now. But there, in 1 Corinthians 3, there's a warning there of not to destroy the church, not to harm the church. The, the ecclesia, the gathering, and it, he says, um, and uh, he identifies the church plural as the, the temple of God. And so there's one place in the New Testament that, that, that intimates, communicates that the, the gathering of the saints with the Spirit in them is a special thing, a special moment. Uh, so from our standpoint, we read this verse and we say, Whoa, uh, not by the blood of bulls and goats, not outwardly, but Christ has now uh, taken me to the mercy seat and washed me clean, and now God meets with me individually, and the Spirit lives in me, not in a temple. But then we also say what a blessing it is to be able to gather together with other believers in the church because here is where there's a collective gathering of, of all of those people, and we rejoice in that. So in this verse we say, what a privilege it is to come on, on Sunday uh, or any gathering for that matter. Do not take my soul along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed in whose hand is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk live my life in integrity. Redeem me, be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations I shall bless the Lord. So you probably do this as well. You, you think, wow, I, God saved me from hell. I, I don't want to go where I deserve and where other people are going. And this is just a prayer in that way. Um, I won't fellowship with them. I won't do what they do. I'll walk in my integrity. I'll, I'll walk in what you have laid before me. So redeem me, be gracious to me, um, and I'll bless you outwardly. I'll, I'll tell others how wonderful you are. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, thank you for your spirit. Our words are just seem small compared to what we just read. Um, we'll let your words be be the words that we we pray. We're we're thankful that you have redeemed us. We're thankful that you have met with us at uh, at the mercy seat and 
applied the blood of Christ. We're thankful that you give us the privilege to to gather together. What an amazing reality that you live in us. You have made us alive. What an amazing privilege to be part of your church and to be able to gather, um, do so, to learn, to grow, um, to be sanctified. Thank you for these men who have gotten out of bed this morning to do that. May you bless us. May you help me um, to, to help them and, uh, impart some spiritual gift. Be encouraged, mutually encouraged by one another's faith. Um, so help us as, even as we learn about church discipline this morning. And we love you. Help us to walk in this verse, this psalm this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open to... Um, sorry, I'm fuzzing there a little bit. There we go. We're on page 251. We're talking about corporate church discipline. But that actually is a drill down from where we started, which basically is, a, is ecclesiology. And all of these things are connected together. Your practice, what you do, is connected to what you believe. So your methodology, how we do church, why we do church, is connected to what the Bible says about church. Um, And then that obviously comes from our authority, which is already settled in our mind because we're believers. So I'm not talking to people that I have to convince this morning that your authority is Scripture, not what you were taught in your traditions or what your grandmother taught you or what you find anywhere else, whether it's uh, um, society or psychology or anything else. This is our authority. So if this is our authority, God wrote a book, we want to know what he said, then we want to learn how to, to mine out of that book what, what he said, and then that's going to build a, a, you know, a, a belief system, a theology of, of all these different things. What's, what does God say about himself, the church, uh, my sin, Christ? And then that's going to turn into methodology, how we live our lives, how we, how we do that collectively as a, as a church. So ecclesiology, the, all about the church, the, the study of, of the church. So... Um, and it started with, which church is God's will for me? So... We said there's the preaching of the word. God's voice is the only voice that's heard. There's qualified leadership. There's qualified elders that are set apart to lead the church. And then, and then there's kingdom membership. And part of the membership, that you are part uh, of a church. You're in commitment with one another. These, these leaders are keeping watch over your soul. Uh, and we're all under the, the same authority, which is God's voice, the, the word of God. And we're drilling down, though, as part of that membership, talking about discipline. And then we're doing that because it's not always practiced and because it's, people get confused. They hear discipline, they automatically think negative. And yet what we, we learned the last time is the, the vast majority of church discipline ends in repentance because it is, it is part of soul care. It's part of, your, it's part of discipleship. It's part of what we do in the church. You are corrected uh, and encouraged and trained and rebuked by others in the church, sometimes without even words being spoken. 
We provoke one another to love and good works. So church discipline's happening even today, even if nobody ever confronts you. It's hap- it happened last Sunday because you're gathering together. And as you gather together, you see Christ being formed in others and that expression of Christ coming out in their life, this faithfulness of this brother, the, this person that you, you know has had a really bad week or got a cancer diagnosis or was sinned greatly against, but there they are singing with tears to the Lord and you see that and you know that and you go, I want to be that. So that's happening. That's discipline. That's, that's part of the process of, of, of church discipline. We normally think, though, when we hear the word, right, somebody drug in front of the church by the scruff of their neck and say, here's the adulterer, throw them to the wolves. That's what comes to our mind because we've allowed the world to define for us what church discipline is or means rather than the scriptures. And we've got to undo that, which is why we're working on on this this lesson. Um, It's necessary... Whether it's passive or whether it's active, whether it happens or whether somebody does come to you and loves you enough to confront you with the truth, um, it's necessary to protect the purity and the unity of the church. It's also necessary for your own soul. What a travesty that is part of American life and a part of the American Christianity that we have taught ourselves that you can do Christianity by yourself, that you can be self-appointed and go out here, it's me and God, the Spirit spoke to me, and I'm going to go do this, or that I don't need the church, the church is where I go get stuff rather than where I go sit and I'm part. That, that, that's just, it's just in us, and we've got to beat it out of ourselves because it's really dangerous and it's really, really bad. Um, so we need all of this ourselves. Um, most often, though, it ends in repentance rather than, rather than disfellowship. So it's exhortation, encouragement, admonishment, correction. It's all of those things. We looked at a number of passages. We talked about some objections the world gives to church discipline. Um, always beware. Whatever the culture is saying about the church, it's, it's Satan trying to convince you to think that way about the church. So be careful that you're not defending the church against whatever the culture is saying. Because the, the minute that you do that, ah, the church is, uh, the minute you do that, you play on their field, and you've lost the game. Okay? You're a soccer player, and they just got you to play baseball. Don't, don't take the bait. Um, you know, we're not, uh, you know, uh, legalistic. We're not the stuffy church. We don't sing old hymns. We, you know, we don't preach long sermons. Why are they saying that? Because the church has said, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the world has said the church is all of those things. And so pastors are trying to say, no, 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 we're not that. You know, you need to come to Jesus. Let me make Jesus and the church so attractive to you as an unbeliever, you'll want to come. How ridiculous is that? You know, same thing with, with, with any other aspect of, of culture or any other aspect of theology. Whatever the culture is saying, don't take the bait and then start preaching sermons about all of that. Just be what the Bible says, and you will be a witness and a testimony. Um, so objections to church discipline that, that you hear, uh, there's gossip. You don't want to do discipline. You don't confront people because other people will talk about it. Um, so we're worried about what they say, what others, what others say. 
The other church should be loving. I mean, discipline is so loving. Telling somebody that they're in sin is just, it's just, ugh, seems harsh. Again, we've created this idea that individualism, it's just the opposite. It's not gracious. Um, it's, in fact, it's unloving uh, to the person. Um, the church should not be fearful of sin or of those who are weak in faith. The church is a hospital uh, you know, for sinners, not a museum for saints. That's what you'll hear, the maturity argument. Um, you shouldn't be afraid of sin. Church should be more tolerant and inclusive. I mean, we're all sinners. Stubborn error uh, should not be disciplined, or, but there should be a sentiment of patience and kindness. Um, but people who realize that they are sinners want and invite other people to correct them, not the other way around. Where do all these arguments come from? Bad ecclesiology. And all of that comes from revivalism and Finneyism and things like the church is, is where we get people saved. The seeker-seeker movement is, a, is, is once removed from there, twice removed from that. Uh, so we, the, the church is to bring unsaved people in and, and preach the gospel to them, give an altar call, and then they get saved in the church. That's what the church gathering is about. That's not biblical. You, you want unsafe people to come. Unsafe people come every Sunday. They're wheat and tares. Uh, I call people to the gospel every Sunday, but the gathering on Sunday morning is for saints. It's for Christians to be equipped. And if you start thinking that the church is about the unchurched or the church is about lost people, then, then this is one of the things that's going to get off track because there's, ah, we don't want to do anything to turn unsafe people off. I mean... How, how will the, somebody who's, who's unsafe think about discipline and, 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 then, and then a number of things um, get off? And, and the, the gathering is about the equipping of the saints and about, about you, and yeah, they're unsafe people, and yeah, you want them to come to Christ, and yeah, invite unsafe people to church. I'm not saying don't do that, but the gathering is a gathering of God's people. It's a gathering of the saints for that purpose. And then you leave, and then you go win them to the Lord, and then they come here and see what a Christian acts like and, and what a Christian should be like and how a church functions, and, and including how Christians sin against each other and how they repent and, and, and all of those things. That, that, that's good um, because they're going to sin and need that. So what are some responses to uh, church discipline objections? On the bottom of page 251, each person in the flock must become uh, comfortable and proactive in the early stages. Personal and private confrontation of a person in the trespass is designed to win the brother back. Um, It should be normal and natural for you to think about the relationships that you have in the church that... You're in that person's life and they're in yours. And if they see you slipping, that somebody comes to you and says, Hey, seems like you're slipping. Anything going on? And you're doing the same thing with others. Um, it should be personal and private. Um, it should be something that you're comfortable doing and you're proactive in doing. It's not mechanical. Um, Richard Caldwell said, 
one of the reasons church discipline fails is because we, we, we're, sometimes we're really overzealous to obey the, the Bible. And so we look at Matthew 18 and say, well, you know, okay, I'm going to go to that person and I'm going to tell them that they sinned. Uh, and then, well, they didn't, they didn't listen, so next week we're taking two or three witnesses, and well, they didn't listen to them, so next week they're going before the church, you know, like a mechanical way, you know, step one, step two, step three, and, and, and that's not the way church discipline happens. It, it can be just as natural as, you know, one sentence or a statement that you make over lunch with your brother, and then if they don't, then, it, you know, it may ramp up from there, but give time for repentance. Give an opportunity for God to work. This doesn't happen in three weeks. Sometimes it could take a year. <laughs> um, there's also times that you do have to intervene quickly, uh, like some of the verses we saw last time. Somebody who's factious. Somebody who's fallen in leadership. Somebody who is in open, repentant, uh, unrepentant sin that's defiling the, the church, like in 1 Corinthians 5. It doesn't take a year. That, that does take one meeting. It's already in the very last stage because of their sin. But that's not, I mean, those are, those are the full bloom. The majority of what's happening is just relationally. We're, we're dealing with, you know, with, with one another. Each must speak truth in love and a spirit of gentleness. Confronting sin with the truth is the most loving thing we can do. Um... Think of the, the, the people that you know, been in your life, that are not believers, or maybe, they're, maybe they are, but they're not doing what we're talking about here. Think how odd it is for somebody to tell you the truth about something that's going on in your life that will hurt you. That's not normal. I mean, they, they'll tell you the truth on Facebook whenever they're hiding in their basement, right? They'll blast you. But talk to them face to face, and it's a different thing. You know, um, very few people will tell you the truth about your sin, and that it, that the person that does that loves you. It's the most loving thing that you can do. It's one of the hardest things that you'll do. Um, and again, it's not always. Hey, brother, I need to take you to verse whatever in the Bible and tell you what's going on here. I mean, I see that in your life. But it, it, you, you move into it, but there are times where you have to say to somebody, no, that's not biblical. Um, and that's one of the most loving things that a person can do for you. Faithful are the wounds of a, of a friend. People who tell you that you're wrong to your face and do it with the Bible love you. Uh, the personal discipline process has the goal of strengthening faith, confronting lies, seeking repentance, and restoring the unrepentant to true fellowship. Sin is based on lies. Satan trying to get you to believe that disobeying God will bring you greater pleasure than obeying God. Um, I want out of this pain. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm fearful. I'm lonely. There's something missing in my life. Well, let me tell you how you can get all those things. Um, God says you'll find the answers to all of those things in obedience to me. Satan says you'll find the answers to all those things in disobedience to me. So 
what will you disobey God to get can be the idol that's, that's in your heart. So it may just be somebody confronting lies. You're believing wrongly about it. Maybe it hasn't even manifested in full sin. You're not doing it yet, but you're thinking about doing it because sin begins in the mind and the heart. And somebody just says, no, that, that's not a biblical way to think about that. Um, number two. Well, let me before, before I go to number two, any thoughts or comments about any of that? Have you ever had somebody confront you? Ever had somebody say, that's, that's sinful? <laughs> or, I don't know about that. Have you, have you looked in Scripture? I mean, there's a verse over here, or there's a passage over here that says we shouldn't do that. How, how do you square that up? I mean, however they came to you. You ever had a, anybody have an experience where they want to share? I have. I've had people come to me, brothers come to me, and just say, that, that sounded really harsh. And Scripture says that you know, you're an example. And I, I, there were times when, when I, I knew that I was harsh, the way I said it. There was something, to use Mark's phrase, you know, already cooking in my heart. And it didn't even have anything to do with the people that I was talking to. There's something going on in my mind where, where I'm just, you know, this happened in, 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 in the church at large, and I'm frustrated about this person, this blogger, this whatever, and then, you know, that comes out, you know, in the sermon, and somebody's sitting there. I remember a lady coming to me one time and uh, saying, it really hurt me. Than you said in the sermon, it wasn't the word. It was just a, it's a comment that I that I made, and it wasn't even directed at her. I wasn't even thinking about how a person could hear that simple illustration. And uh, I said, "I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I never want to, never want to do that." There's other times when people have come and said, "I didn't like what you said," and I had to say, "I'm sorry." You know, I mean. <laughs> just said what it says there wasn't anything anything there but um, that's a simple illustration of how people can correct you and and they're loving you whenever they whenever they do that by your wife and your kids absolutely absolutely there's that that's who you wanted that CD for yeah yeah Amen. think who it was years ago. It might have been Mark Vaughn from Roanoke. I brought him up here for a marriage thing over the summer. I think it was him. It might have been somebody else. Anyway, he was talking about what Clay just mentioned. When somebody confronts you, 
deal with the truth that they're bringing to you. Not who's bringing it, how they're bringing it, or the timing in which they're bringing it. Because those are three things that we use to excuse the truth. Wait a minute. Who do they think they are? I mean, I'm the pastor, or I'm the husband. I mean, she's supposed to submit to me, First Peter 3 and Ephesians 5. What's my wife doing correcting me? No. So you dismiss the truth. That's a sinful way to think, obviously, because you're supposed to dwell with her, First Peter 3 says, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's, she has equality in the Lord as far as the Spirit of God is concerned. In fact, she may have a greater insight than you do about that. So deal with what she's saying, not the fact that she's the one that's saying it. Or the, or the, the timing. It's like, oh, it's bad timing, you know. I'm prepared for this or getting ready for this. or So we, we dismiss it because of the timing. Or the way. Sometimes your wife or sometimes another church member may come to you in the wrong way. Maybe they don't even obey, obey Scripture. They go tell somebody else and bring them rather than, you know, oh, they didn't do the first stage of Matthew 18. They didn't come to me alone. So I, so, and now you've dismissed what the real issue is and you're using a secondary matter to do it. Or your wife may nag you. She may whine. She may do all those other things. We just, you know, clam up and pout and go hunt or do something else. She may, and you're going, listen to that. What's she saying, though? No, it's sinful to do that. But, but are you actually dealing with what she's bringing to you, which is actually the, the Lord? And then that may be another opportunity, like Clay said, for you to respond rightly to the sin of your wife by going, whoa, you know, what she's saying to me is true. The way she's saying it is bad. And now I'm going to model how to respond to the truth. And that's how she's going to actually learn to not do that to you because you've modeled it. Um, and you don't want to model the opposite. Who do you think you are, woman? I mean, don't you understand? Or, or just, I'm not listening you just modeled for her another sinful response. Um, and that, that's a, a large part of leading your, your wives or your children, how you respond to those situations. It's a large part, like Clay saying, of how you, you lead other believers, people that you're discipling, which is why elders and pastors have to be models. You know, let, let no one look down on your youth, despise your youth, but be an example in love and purity and all of these other things. You're... You're modeling that doctrine in the way in which you, you live. Now, I get it. You're, you're men, you're sinful men. You're not going to do that all the time. So then guess what you get an opportunity to do? You get to model confession and repentance, and I have modeled that a lot. You know, my family ought to know how to repent really, really well watching me. And that's a good thing. And you know what? That's exactly what the unbelieving world needs to see. The unbelieving world needs to see people who say, I don't pretend that I'm not a sinner. I fully acknowledge I'm a sinner. And the gospel covers all of my sin. And here is what you do whenever you sin. You own it and you say, I messed up. Please forgive me. Um, not duck and cover or run others. That's what they'll get out there. Um, I didn't do that. Or I did that, but... Look, if you wouldn't have done X, Y, and Z, then I wouldn't have done that to begin with. That's what they get in the world. 
that, that's just human justification, excusing. Um, so that's good timing, how they do it, and, 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 and who does it. Um, somebody who is mature, this takes maturity. I didn't always do this. I hope I'm doing it now. Maybe I'm not. If not, the Lord will help me. A mature man is able to receive criticism and correction. An immature man is not able to receive criticism or correction. A mature man is able to receive it and then evaluate it based on is this accurate or not, throw off what's, what's inaccurate, let that roll off how it was done or what was said, or let's say they come to you and they're wrong about that they're telling you three things and two things that they're saying are just not accurate. But you're able to own then what is accurate. So you receive it. You don't get overly offended by it. You go, yeah, that's true. No, those things aren't true. Um, and then you deal with it, and, and, and you, move, you move on. So maybe that's an area the Lord wants you to, to grow in. But the church must never invite or allow unrepentant sin in its midst. Notice it's unrepentant, where the church's purity is at, at risk. So I think we talked about this last time. There's a difference between uh, someone who hasn't professed Christ. There's a difference between somebody who's joined and somebody who hasn't joined. Um, you know, you don't judge the world, Paul says. You eat with sinners. Sense of trying to, to win them to Christ. Obviously, there's, a, there's limitations there. Is it going to damage your testimony? Is it going to call another brother to stumble? 1 Corinthians 8 says it was, it's better to offend an unbeliever and refuse idle meat than to offend a, the conscience of a believer. So you elevate your brothers, do good to all men, especially the brethren. So your relationships to other Christians are more important than your relationships to unsaved people because then the unsaved person says, hey, it's better to be an unsaved person than, than a brother. Look at how they treat one another. They, they'd rather love me than, you know, than, than them. Um, but you don't allow unrepentant sin to, Paul says, you don't eat with the so-called brother, somebody who's professing that they're a believer, but they're continuing in sin. Um, and we'll get to specific sins, how you deal with these specific sins before we're done. Church must not allow disunity or divisiveness to spread. This undermines leaders and disrupts the church's purity. This is something that has to be dealt with quickly because that can... That can spread like gangrene. That can get, get out of hand uh, pretty quickly. And the discipline process begins with personal purity and is executed by unifying peacemakers. Um, we avoid factious behavior. We're always about strengthening the hand of everyone in gospel ministry. Um, if you come out of the background that, that I do, a number of you do, a number of you don't, uh, when fundamentalism became a you know a, a sad shadow of what it be, what it was intended to be when it began, you remember fundamentalism when it started was a reaction to liberalism that came over from Europe. What are the fundamentals of the faith? What must we believe in order to go to heaven? And it was it was multiple denominations. Presbyterians, Baptists, and what are the fundamentals of the faith? 
and then it turned into the preaching about the practices of the liberals rather than their doctrine. So around prohibition, sermons out of that, you know, don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke, you know, all those things are will hurt you in certain ways. You can nuance what Scripture says about those kinds of things, but dancing probably doesn't hurt you, but the, you know, the drinking and the smoking does. But um, the... So what? What then? The, then the church loses the doctrine and the fundamentals, and it's just it becomes a sad shadow, and then that just shrinks. And now fundamentalism is not what it used to be. I mean, the three topics, as I said, are you know soul winning, the King James Bible, and separation, and those are the only three sermons that that you get. There's not a lot of exposition, and then some of them have even got into the militant commerce, just ugly. So you've been in those sermons where you hear, I mean, the, the pastor is is always, you know, self-aggrandizing. He's always he's always the hero of every story. He's putting people down from the pulpit. He's doing those types of of things. Um, we want to strengthen everyone's hand in gospel ministry. I don't have any authority over you other than what Scripture says. Um, be an example in humility, but diligently address impurity in the church. Um, Christ wants his people to be pure, just do that in a biblical way. Um, so what's your first duty if you want to practice this? First duty is your own purity and in being engaged in discipleship. You won't do this if... You don't gather like you're doing this morning in Grace and Granite, and you don't have any relationships outside of that. Um, it'll be awkward to call a brother to go to lunch, and then you know drop a you know drop a verse bomb on him because you see something in his life. I mean that that doesn't work. You have to earn the right to be heard by being in covenant relationship with him. It should be natural. Um, you'll have people that you'll get along with, and you have more affinity for. That's fine. I mean, I'm not saying that in the church you need to look and say, ah, I wonder what's going on in his life. I'm going to take Tim to lunch this week and, and really just, you know. You have relationships, smaller groups. You're in your small group in your Sunday school class and the church as a whole, people that you have natural affinity with. And, and it's natural in those relationships to talk and say, what's going on? Well, it seems like, you know, you and Susie are... Not getting along, you know. Um, personal purity and discipleship. Obviously, you don't feel comfortable doing that if there's not personal purity in your own life. I mean, you have no desire to go restore somebody else if if you're been overtaken in a fault yourself. So our first concern is that we're personally walking in in, in holiness. Um, open to Matthew seven. Matthew 7, this is both a misinterpreted passage or misused passage and and also an excuse not to do this, usually Matthew 7, verse 5, I think. Let me see. I'm looking for the log and the beam. One. One. Okay. 
7 verse 1. Okay. Um, in 5, okay. Oh, well, duh. I'm in Mark 7. I'm going, where's this at? I'm going, shoo. Oh. Huh? Yeah, you're right. Might be pride that I don't wear them, right? Okay. Do not judge so that you'll not be judged. Who are you to judge me? You're talking about to me for. You know, you've heard people say that. For in the way that you judge, you will not be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye. So there's a corrective aspect of this. There's somebody who's judging. What's the difference between discerning and judging? How's this passage misused? I mean, the world says, uh, whoever's without sin, let them cast the first stone. Don't judge. Christians, Christians are judgy. The Bible says, don't judge. But then how do you do Matthew 18, which says if you see your brother in sin, you go to them. Is that judging? Is it judging to bring them before the church, the full, the full end? Is it, I mean, how do we do what we're saying if, if that's the interpretation of this passage? So what's the difference to discern and recognize sin in somebody's life and go to them, love them enough to do that? and then judging, which is something you're clearly not supposed to do. So the difference between discerning and judgment, there's a part that both of them are the same. You discern sin. You're called to see it, and you're called to call it out, and you're called to identify it, and you're called to confront. That's not judging. Judging is, is, is going a step further, which is to set in the seat of condemnation, meaning... And therefore, this is what you should get for that, and this is how soon you should get it. So judging is, is actually bringing condemnation on them, you know, in the timing that you think is appropriate. Giving them what you think they deserve when you think that they deserve it. When God may delay that for a really long time. God may bring it immediately. But your job is not to discern... Or your job is not to, to, to mete out the punishment or how quickly that that happens. But your job is to discern and to call something exactly what it is and know what it is. That, that's, that's the same word. You just don't sit in the seat of God and, and bring it about. So that's what they're doing here. And that's what you're not supposed to do. Um, you're not to be hypocritical about it. So there's hypocritical judgments here, you know. Get this little splinter in your eye, and you're pointing out something in somebody else's eye. You know, um, how can you say to your brother, verse four, "Let me take the speck out of your eye"? Behold, the log is in your own eye. So there's some corrective. You hypocrite! Now notice this. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly. Uh, I'm sorry. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what does that imply? I mean, how's this, how's this passage used? 
you can't talk speaking to my life because you're a sinner too. But how does that verse end? It says don't judge, don't sit in the seat of condemnation. But what does it say for you to do? What's the positive? Don't do this, but what does it say? Okay. Not, not so that I can hold myself up here, put him down here. Like you right. said earlier, the purpose is not to be the final judge. <laughs> yeah. Now, I want you to notice that, that it, it tells you not to do something, but it, but, it, but it doesn't just stop there. It tells you not to judge, but it actually tells you to remove the sin in your own life so you can go to your brother. And you can show your brother truthfully. So the point is, don't fail to deal with your own sin, but don't stop there. You remove your, you know, the log out of your own eyes so you can see clearly the splinter that's in your, your brother's eye. So, so there's two sides to this coin, and we often misinterpret it, and we also stop. Oh, well, I can't say that because, because I'm a sinner too. Um, and you shouldn't be a hypocrite. But the, the way to obey this passage is to take it to its full end, remove it out of your own life so you can help your brother. So personal holiness. Yeah? It's good. It's excellent. Yeah, did you hear what he just said? I, I, you know, the process of you searching your own heart and removing whatever you find there is, you know, is God's meat tenderizer for your own heart. It 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 softens you. So when you do go, you go in the spirit of Galatians six one and two, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. You go in a spirit of gentleness. Why do you go in a spirit of gentleness? Because you just did some heart surgery on yourself <clears throat> pull the pull the log out which can be painful so now you go wow I get it I, I could be there too I was just there and that 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 gives you the right spirit in which you know to go uh, to the person um, Galatians 6 commands we do that we bear one another's burdens and we help others in their Christian walk and to love one another is to speak the truth, according to Ephesians 4.15. That can be as easy, speaking the truth in love, that can be as easy as repeating something that you've learned. Um, you, you can just be a parrot. That's all we are anyway. <laughs> just parroting what, the God, what God said. Who cares? If it's true, it's from the Lord. Share what 
God did in your own life in that situation. It can also be as hard as confronting somebody. Um, First Timothy, or sorry, First Thessalonians two eleven. We exhort, we encourage, we admonish, we we parakaleo, we come alongside like like a paraclete. We we encourage them, which means to prod and console. We admonish them. It's the word, the Greek word where we get martyr, which means a witness. So you appeal to them. And our purpose is to keep one another from disunity and ensure the purity of the, of the body. So that's our, our, our duty. Thoughts, comments, questions before we close? Amen. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your the psalm that we read. Thank you for this truth of all our interaction. We do long to be holy, pure, honor Christ. We're also well aware, Lord, that we are sinful. And the impulses of our remaining flesh, the unredeemed part that's still here, we're waiting for glorification, is ever-present. And so we want to we kill that, mortify that sin. Um, and as we do, and as we, we realize that sinfulness, we run to Christ. He's our advocate with the Father. And Lord, we, we can't make it alone. We need others. So thank you for that. Thank you for these brothers, how they speak into my life and encourage me and provoke me. And um, Lord, if there's sin that's in me or ever creeps in, I pray that you would love me enough through them and they would love me enough to to point it out. Help us whenever people do correct us, Lord, um, to deal with the correction the truth of it, rather than who they are, when they share it, how they share it. And um, Thank you for our church. Thank you most of all for Jesus. May we honor Him as we live today in Christ's name. Amen.